Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Miles Beale started his working life as a Eurocrat in Brussels before becoming private secretary to two very contrasting Labour Party politicians, Mo Molem and John Prescott. For the last decade, he's been the chief executive of the Wine and Spirit Trade Association, dealing with alcohol taxation, minimum unit pricing, the fallout from Brexit and the demands of one of the drinks trade's highest profile jobs. It's a fascinating interviewee. Hello, Miles. How are you? Uh, good afternoon, Tim. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Um, what have you been up to today? Any politicians you've been dealing with? Well, yes, um, an early call with a member of the Scottish government, which was uh, interesting, um, challenging, challenging for them, I hope. Ah, good, in all the right ways. Yes, quite. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I'm very honoured to be talking to you because you're regularly described as the most influential person in the wine in the UK, and I suppose that applies to spirits too. I just wonder if either wine or spirits was part of your family background. Um, well... It's, it's very flattering to be uh, top of some of these charts. I've, I've a feeling it's because um, lots of things are looking miserable, and I hope I'll get knocked off uh, quite quickly when there are some nice positive things to talk about. But um, in answer to your question, um, I mean, no, not specifically. Uh, so th- there's nothing in my family background really that um, uh, suggests a particular affinity with with um, food or even food and drink. Um, but my wife's family uh, were um, her father was a restaurateur. Um, so definitely a little bit from that side. And then in the dim and distant past, um, my grandfather, who was in the Navy, uh, was in some way responsible for the abolition of the rum ration, which I'm not sure I've said publicly before. So um, I think it was probably a good thing, but but um, but uh, uh, certainly not something I've volunteered. So others will make up their minds on that, I think. It probably made him very unpopular. Yes, yes. Um, but the, the idea of... Um, uh, Anyone on a uh, you know a, a ship with um, with weaponry operating some of that weaponry uh, under the influence of various tots of rum is is, is probably a bit worrying uh, to the modern ear at least. It may have been what made the British Navy so successful. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things from that. We can talk about Navy strength and that sort of thing, but uh, yeah, uh, working of machinery, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So, did you ever imagine you'd end up in, in alcohol, as it were? Uh, frankly, no, probably not. I mean, I, I think, um, uh, you know, I got as far as um, being keen to be a civil servant. Um, that took me a couple of goes, uh, and I was thoroughly enjoying it, uh, and policy making in particular. Lots and lots of variety working for government of different colours. Um, I never really expected to leave. I don't think there are such things as jobs for life anymore, but uh, the civil service is probably quite close to one of those. Uh, so, no, I hadn't really imagined it. Uh, and it was a sort of a series of incidents, uh, including a, a period of austerity that led to me having to look outside of government. Um, once I was, uh, I remember in particular going for a trade association role, which a headhunter suggested, which I think is a good fit. Uh, I did one uh, for the trade association for the video games industry. Um, 
I, I don't know that much about video games. Um, the next one that came along was Wines and Spirits. And I thought, well, uh, I've had a year in Bordeaux. I'm, I'm much more interested in consuming Wines and Spirits than I am video games. And, and the rest is history. And I suspect you're having more fun with Wine and Spirits than you would have done with video games. I think so. For, for me, it's a better fit, that's for sure. Because it's interesting, you studied politics and French at Bristol University. They had a year in Bordeaux, didn't you? The Institut d'études politiques. Um, so was it a natural step from there to go and work in, in Brussels? Well, I suppose it, it, it was in a way. I mean, I um, I did elect to do a, a third year of my French and politics degree in France studying politics. So I, I could have gone to sort of teach English uh, or, or, uh, or, or gone and studied French in a French university, but I particularly wanted to go and study politics because I thought that's the way that my French would improve most. Um, luckily, uh, there was a relationship between Bristol University and the, and the five Institut d'études politiques in France, uh, and I more or less was able to pick where I wanted to go, and, and Bordeaux definitely appealed, not least because of the wine. So from that point of view, I certainly did pick it. I can't say I thought about it a great deal after going into the civil service from there um, until the Wine and Spirits Trade Association came knocking. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I, I certainly made me appreciate uh, British education as well. Uh, was it a natural step to go into um, working, well, particularly at the European Commission? I, I don't know. I mean, I went back to Bristol for a, a year. Um, I then had another year off uh, doing a bit of skiing in uh, also in France, in the French Alps, in Chamonix. And then I was looking around. I was particularly after a graduate uh, trainee scheme, but my aunt suggested a placement at the European Commission for six months while I was uh, trying to make up my mind. Uh, so I had to, at the time, I was a bit disappointed. I had to cut my ski uh, ski adventure short to go to Brussels, uh, but it turned out to be a good thing. And you worked for Neil Kinnock, didn't you, in, in, the, in the transport DG? Did you like the Eurocrat world? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, look, I did. I, I went to work for him. I think I probably only saw him a couple of times. I ended up working for a, uh, a wonderful lady called Shirsten Sterner, who was a former Volvo director who wanted some help uh, writing her speeches in English. So um, wet behind the ears, though I was, I got to have a go at that. And she, she you know, she, she more or less liked what I produced and so uh, used me quite a lot for five months. Um, mm. And it was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I think I particularly enjoyed the work. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed... Um, policy making. Uh, I enjoyed speech writing. Uh, uh, what I did feel, however, was that I, I felt a tiny bit dislocated. I don't naturally feel sort of like a, um, uh, you know, a, a Brussels type European. It's definitely a bit of a bubble there. And I, and I felt I have more affinity with the UK. So I, I like the topic, but I wanted to do it on behalf of the UK government rather than the European Commission. Yeah. And you went back to England and you got into the civil service fast stream. But your career could have gone in a different direction. You could have ended up working for Boots, couldn't you? Yes, uh, yes, you're you're quite right. I did um, when I got back from Brussels. I was uh, I was working in a bar, uh, as lots of people do, and indeed I think lots of people should. Uh, lots to learn there. At, uh, but it was a picture and piano in Richmond. I had a fantastic time. But I was interviewing at the same time, and I particularly wanted a graduate training scheme because I wanted something that was going to give me a sort of rounded approach to. Uh, to management as a sort of first step on the career and hopefully a few jobs in a in a short space of time. The civil service fast stream is a fantastic graduate training scheme, but I also apply to others, including uh, in particular 
I think you're referring to the one uh, that I tried with, with, with Boots. Yes, so I went to Boots the Chemist up to Nottingham for an interview with them, yes. And didn't you have an incident with a suit bag on the train? Could you tell us about that? I, I did. You're quite right. I um, yeah, I ended up with two interviews in a row, um, which, uh, you know, for a recently ex-student seemed like an enormous amount of work. But I did. I went up to Nottingham for a sort of an overnight series of interviews. Um, so I, I took with me my, uh, I think it was my uncle's suit, and I had a suit carrier that I'd been lent, and uh, up I went on the train. And I was coming down the following afternoon, uh, had changed out of my suit into kind of civvies, and I knew I had to go across London to stay with a friend. And then I had a, a, an interview for the civil service the following day. Uh, I, I got back, I was trying to prepare my clothes, and I, I uh, unbuttoned and unzipped the suit carrier opened it up and there before me was a spectacular sparkling red cocktail dress. Um, Not in fact mine. Uh, It just happened that one of the other uh, interviewees for the Boots Graduate Training Scheme, um, very nice young lady, uh, um, had had exactly the same suit carrier. She'd ended up with my uncle's suit and I'd ended up with her cocktail dress. So did you get in contact with her and give it back to her? I did, I did, but unfortunately not in time to go to the civil service interview. So I had to borrow a, a friend of mine's suit. Um, I think I actually had a choice between two friends. One was a, a bit taller and one was a bit shorter. So I went with the one who was a bit taller and, and, and sort of arrived uh, looking like I was wearing uh, one of my father's suits, not yet fully grown, but um, but uh, it didn't do me any harm. It's interesting that having worked for Neil Kinnock, even though you didn't see him very much, you then worked as a private secretary to two more Labour politicians, Mo Molum, Dr Mo Molum, uh, and Job Prescott. I'm pretty contrasting characters, I imagine. What were the the two of them like to work for? Did they work in similar ways? Well, uh, yes, in fact. I mean, lots of people think of them as very different characters. And indeed, if you if you read about them in the media, uh, that's exactly what you would uh, you would think because they were treated very differently by the media. Um, Mo being a darling of the media and, and Prescott rather uh, rather kind of a, an object of uh, of fun on occasions or anger on others. Um, actually, they were quite similar in in one respect at least, which was that they both wore their hearts on their sleeves. So you always knew what they thought um, mm. when they got uh, annoyed or, or irritated or ecstatically happy. Um, you know, it was never at all with you, um, but you knew exactly what they felt. Um, so they were similar to work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I think was remarkably different was going out and about in public. Um, I always used to remember that uh, go- going out and about with uh, John Prescott, uh, as you know, anyone who's seen any footage of him at certain elections will know, you know, you had to stay pretty close in case he needed to get out quickly or you might need to uh, intervene. Um, and he was not comfortable in public, but he prepared very thoroughly for it. Uh, and he'd you know, be able to give you a signal when he wanted to kind of move on or get out. Um, Momo, on the other hand, um, far harder to get to prepare, but but um, got a bit nervous beforehand, um, perhaps hadn't done as much preparation as, uh, as she would like on occasions, but was absolutely wonderful in front of the public. So the only thing I knew I always needed with Mo, which was quite easy, and then everything would go very well, I'd always have in my left suit pocket um, a comb and in my right suit pocket uh, a Mars bar. And as long as I had those two things, uh, any visit with her would be fine. (laughs) I mean, you've had a lot of dealings in your current job now as your chief executive of the Wine Spirit Association with lots of politicians, you know, including obviously people from the the Tories, Theresa May, Richie Sunak. do they have certain things in common? I mean, what's the secret to dealing with them? I mean, you know, what's the secret of being a good lobbyist, which is what you are in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, we might come back to the lobbyist point because I think um, 
you know, I, I run a trade association and we do advocacy, we do lobbying, but we're not set up to uh, lobby exclusively. We're set up, set up as a trade association to support members that work in the trade. And that includes kind of preparing the ground and explaining regulation and where we can influencing it. Um, you know, unlike a, a lot of anti-alcohol lobbyists, which do nothing but that. Um, the secret to dealing with politicians, frankly, is um, to be well informed, know what they're trying to do, and to be as helpful as possible. Um, now, sometimes being helpful means, you know, being pretty frank. Uh, but, you know, usually, mm. uh, if you're from a trade association, they're trying to understand a sector better. And it's usually usually so they can solve a problem or deliver a new policy. So they usually want your help. You're usually... Um, kind of a, a, a almost a more acceptable face. You're unlikely to be the most angry or, or, or the most uh, happy about something, and you're going to give a broad range of what's available. It's definitely helpful to have been a civil servant because you're likely to be able to think in the same way as some of those uh, ministers are thinking. Um, and, and I have been very lucky to you know, have quite a lot of dealings with politicians both in and outside uh, the civil service. So I'm familiar with how they're briefed, how they work. Um, Part of it is simply about being able to know what kind of conversation you're having, uh, how much time you've got to do it, mm. and being very clear about what you want out of it. Not, not unlike a media interview, you've probably got the chance to raise two or three things. They're probably going to ask you about two or three things, as long as you can predict uh, both of those uh, and be frank and have the right information, you'll have a good conversation. What's a typical week for you? I mean, you know, how much of it is dealing with politicians? How much is it talking to your members? Um, how much is it thinking about policy issues? I mean, what do you do exactly on a daily basis or weekly basis? Yeah, so, I mean, it's an excellent question. I, I, I've been asked it a couple of times. I mean, the lovely thing is there's no typical week, um, but every week involves a combination of different things. Um, almost always speaking to uh, a few politicians, um, uh, but equally often civil servants. Uh, in fact, you're far more likely to have a good constructive conversation with a politician if you've spoken to civil servants uh, first or special advisors, the sort of political advice they'll be getting. Um, always having a, a number of conversations with um, uh, you know, rank and file WSTA members um, and a significant number of conversations probably with board members uh, in particular. Um, I think probably the, the other piece, which of course is not always so obvious, is I spend a lot of time talking to my team. I mean, one of my I think probably the thing of which I'm most proud at the WSTA is that it works um, without me these days. I mean, there are people inside my organization who I think are uh, better than I am. So um, my head of policy was in the civil service at Simon Stannard for longer than me, including 10 years in Brussels. He's absolutely brilliant. If you want to know how decisions are being taken in Brussels or in Whitehall, David Richardson is an ex-HMRC legal prosecutor. Uh, Lucy Panton uh, is a former News of the World journalist, uh, and Gemma Keyes has been... Uh, she's great. Uh, yeah, she's fantastic. And, and Gemma Keyes, uh, who, who's, who's the quietest, perhaps, of the sort of senior uh, team, has been at WSTA for you know, over 15 years and, and knows where, if you like, all the bodies are buried and all the invoices are. So she's extremely yeah. useful too, and it makes my life a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, you've been there just over a decade now. I mean, what a decade it's been. You know, you've had some things on your plate, haven't you? Brexit, is that top of the list or maybe the pandemic of the hardest things you've had to deal with? That's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I think um, I, I one of the reasons I've been at the WS so long is it's been so varied. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, um, but it has been almost like a sort of tenure of two halves. Um, prior to 2016, 
I was getting to know how to run a trade association, trying to get the right people into it, um, expand the membership, work out what the priorities were and where the sector uh, industry was going, what the challenges coming up were, a lot of which sort of uh, herald from government. The second half has been sort of, you know, in some ways, pandemonium on the side I'm, you know, really meant to understand best, the public affairs side. I mean, governments, uh, you know, uh, uh, changing very quickly. Um, David Cameron being kind of the, if you like, the kind of the, the quiet point. Um, uh, and, you know, I had a couple of meetings even in number 10 with him and members, and then suddenly we had Brexit. Uh, uh, everything changed. It didn't change at the Scottish independence referendum, but it did change dramatically with Brexit. And thereafter, the hits keep on coming. I mean, it's particularly COVID. Quite a lot of people ask now, you know, what are the biggest changes and, and why have they happened? And I think, frankly, some of the biggest changes are a combination of Brexit and COVID at the same time. I think the irony is it's also allowed the entire industry to think a bit differently. Um, so mm. if you'd said to kind of a perhaps a wine buyer uh, five years ago, or certainly before 2016, you know, what about your supply chain? Are you thinking about doing things differently? You've got a slightly blank look. Uh, nowadays, I think everyone knows very much more about their supply chain, uh, where their wines are coming from, how they can look at efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So the job is very different now than it was before 2016. It's a lot more challenging. I'm actually hoping that this year, 2023, is the year that we manage to kind of raise our sights a little bit, look forward uh, and try and work out where we'd like to be in three years' time rather than three months or three weeks, which it's definitely been for the last couple of years. Three days. Yes, <laughs> quite. Um, very few days, particularly yeah. if it's politicians, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, you represent lots of different interest groups. You've got 350 members, the multinationals, supermarkets, specialist retailers, brand owners, wholesalers, fine wine and spirit specialists, logistics, bottling companies. How do you keep them all happy? I mean, you know, they must have different different agendas, haven't they, to a degree? They definitely do. And, and uh, uh, at risk of um, failing at the first hurdle, maybe I don't keep them all happy. But um, I think we managed to keep uh, the majority of our members happy, happy the majority of the time. I've often described the WSTA as having almost fault lines, um, big companies versus small companies, wine companies versus spirit companies, uh, producers versus retailers. Actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. But in the end, it comes down to probably tailoring of uh, products and particularly services. So, um, you know, occasionally there are things in which all our members are interested. So certainly reform of the duty system, um, uh, certainly Brexit and how that changes imports or exports, because almost everyone is doing something to do with uh, moving their goods across borders. But in the end, you know, you have groups of members who are significantly more interested in some things. So if you have a consultation that you're working on with the government about um, online sales, then there's a, you know, a relatively small number of reasonable sized companies in, in uh, WSTA membership who really, really want to make a difference on that. So we will pull together a group and work with them closely there. Um, you know, on the other hand, I mean, to pick a couple of current topics, you know, a deposit and return scheme in Scotland. Uh, I mean, that is, uh, that was the subject of my conversation with a, with a minister this morning. Um, you know, that, I mean, you know, bluntly, I don't see any way that's going to be delivered either according to uh, the way it's being described as a system at the moment or on time. One of those two things has to give. We don't have a footprint in Scotland. We have a very small number of members in Scotland, but we do have, for example, multiple retailers in membership. So 
we have to work with those members who not only are most interested, but also have most influence. And of course, that is a really good example of an issue where it's Scotland first, but it's going to be the rest of the UK and different schemes in the rest of the UK thereafter. So we have to go at that one hard. We have to be very clear about what we can live with. And we have to both criticise and praise, frankly, mainly criticise at the moment, in order that we give ourselves the best chance of the right system all across the UK. It could be, could be four different systems um, that all of our members may be interested in. So if you operate in the southwest, you've got no interest perhaps in Scotland now, but whatever happens in Scotland with a deposit and return scheme is definitely going to influence what you have to do in two or three years' time. Interesting. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the health lobby because alcohol comes in for a lot of flack, not just in the UK. If you look what's happening in France at the moment, how does the WSTA promote responsible drinking? What do you, how do you do that? Well, it, it, it's high on our list, uh, to be honest. I mean, uh, there are different parts to it. Uh, I would say number one is defending the industry because um, I would describe the anti-alcohol lobby as, uh, as you know, genuine lobbyists. That's what they're there to do. They're hired guns to promote, um, you know, if not prohibition, then something short of it. Um, and, and I think that's all they do. And they take a game plan that they might have borrowed for another industry like tobacco, which I don't think is comparable at all. Um, and, and that's what they're running with. And often we're simply there to say, you know, in a way that can't be criticised in quite the same way as if you're a company, to simply say, hang on, that's not quite true. Here are some of the facts. And I always start, particularly with politicians who are sort of listening to all of this stuff by saying, you know, we drink broadly 20% less alcohol than we did roughly 15 years ago. So that's a drop of a fifth in 15 years. And uh, and the industry is still doing reasonably well, generating a lot of tax for the exchequer, companies successful, um, big employer, uh, etc. So we, uh, you know, and a big international footprint, particularly for, you know, wine trading. And that is a good way of explaining that actually, that's as close to win-win as you're going to get. If you're a politician, you're trying to find the balance. It's pretty good, actually. People are mm. drinking less, spending more on what they choose to drink, and probably trading up for quality. So business, government, and frankly, anti-alcohol lobbyists should all be able to get behind that. But of course, that's never quite how it works. <laughs> the, the other piece of it is we try and do sort of you know bespoke advice to, uh, to members. So we have very big member companies who know exactly what they're doing, and we're often promoting what they do in, in order that it becomes a good example for others to follow. Sometimes we do kind of cross-industry work, so we work closely with you know, DrinkAware, the Portman Group, um, and in particular, the thing I'm probably most proud of is our own initiatives. So uh, we have something called Community Alcohol Partnerships, which was sort of incubated under the wing of the WSTA, and I have separated out as now a completely separate community interest company under the now quite long chairmanship of Derek Lewis, who was previously chair of DrinkAware. And, and, and that is fantastically effective. It's basically um, what we do is we, we, we set up a small partnership with a bit of seed corn money where there are problems with underage drinkers. We very quickly uh, tackle both supply and demand in that little area, usually by taking the young people and finding something else for them to do. So instead of getting drunk and perhaps you know causing nuisance, smashing up phone boxes or something similar to that, we'll give them something else to do, maybe football training with the local uh, football team or manga drawing or, or some sort of arts and uh, arts or theatre or something similar. Um, and on the supply side, our retailer members um, train every retailer in the area to the same standard as they train their own staff. 
So you'll have a large supermarket training all of the retailers. And of course, some of those independent retailers, they might possibly have not understood the law properly, or possibly they overlooked it and sold to people they thought might be under 18. And suddenly, they learn how Challenge 25 works and how the supermarkets do it. So you find supply dries up, demand disappears because it's dissipated because there's something else to do. And it's very effective very quickly. So you know things like you know 42% drop in antisocial behavior quite suddenly, and that has a very big impact on the community. Um, relatively little investment, big return. I think when I arrived, there were about 30 community alcohol partnerships um, uh, dotted around mainly England. Now we're up well over 200, sort of 250, uh, and and you know definitely national. Um, most recently in Scotland, and they just are very practical. They're pretty quick to get going, and they're extraordinarily good value for money. And we get uh, an increasing amount of funding from a very very broad section of supporters, some of whom aren't even WSTA members. But it's a fantastic initiative. I mean, are younger people drinking less alcohol? I mean, what are the stats like in in, in the UK? Uh, yeah, well, they they, they are. I mean, as I said, um, the the um, you know, the trend is, you know, roughly 20% less uh, uh, volume of alcohol than we did 15 years ago. For young people, it's certainly uh, more marked than that. So it's dropped uh, far quicker. Um, I think it's particularly sort of 11 to 15 year olds where we see, uh, you know, the largest drop. It's really happened quite quickly. So I think um, 2021, something like 34% of pupils uh, say they drank alcohol at least a few times a year. Well, you know, that seems to me to be extraordinarily low. Um, 8% of 11-year-olds versus 60% of 15-year-olds. So you kind of get an idea there about what the spread looks like. Um, look, I think we're, we're, we're keen to make sure that um, as far as possible, no one drinks before 18, but we're not in charge of that. And actually, of course, probably rightly, government and particularly um, you know, educational establishments are, are, are not and would not be comfortable with the alcohol industry, you know, doing that education face to face. But the truth is, young people yeah. and even above 18 now tend to drink, you know, less than the cohorts uh, that go before them. Than um, we did. Yeah, certainly <laughs> yeah. than we did. I mean, frankly, you know, mm. probably peaked my sort of era, um, let's say the 90s, uh, to, to be kind to everyone. But um, it's definitely changed. The thing I also think is extremely interesting is you get you know, young people under 30 now who are very happy to spend quite a lot of money on, on a much more expensive bottle of wine or, or, or cocktails. Um, but the volume of alcohol they're drinking is, is, is much, much less. So it's continuing a trend that frankly is good for everyone. And that's something we can, of course, yeah. encourage. I mean, you've been a very enthusiastic supporter of English wine and British gin, which have both developed as categories really on, on your watch. I'm not saying it's all down to you, but but you, it's coincided with your term at uh, the WSTA. Um, how do you see them developing over the next 10 years, those categories? Yeah, fantastic question. I mean, it's um, uh, some of this for me has been quite simple. It's great to get behind a couple of British products that are you know, either already successful and can be even more successful or emerging as successes. Um, uh, you know, in in, uh, in England and Wales now we have, I mean, it's almost 900 vineyards, which coincidentally is almost exactly the same number as kind of independent wine and spirit merchants we have around the country. So, but, but, you know, very widespread, a lot of them, mostly very small. Um, you know, hectareage under vine has gone up. We think something like doubling in the last eight years and quadrupling since the year 2000. So my tenure has definitely overlapped with a kind of a huge increase in plantings. Um, and you're right, certainly not stimulated by me. I just happen to have been there while it's happened. And it's a high quality product with, with great export potential. 
British gin, of course, much more quintessentially British. I think we passed, um, you know, the number of distilleries in England passed the number in Scotland uh, three or four years ago. Um, they are, on average, smaller. Um, but the point is, you you know, technology has enabled smaller businesses to set up distilleries all over the place, and all of these things, I think, have, you know, fantastic potential for, um, especially local rural economic growth. Uh, I think there's a huge tourism benefit that's not really being noticed by the industry yet, and I think um, it's slightly ironic. Maybe I'll be able to have this conversation with a with a. Um, uh, you know, a Labour minister possibly in a few, a couple of years' time. But, you know, the cafe society that Tony Blair talked about and was much scoffed at, it's definitely here. It's here in the UK. I think there's a recovery problem post-pandemic. But, you know, Brits like their food and drink and appreciate it. And it is no longer, if it ever was, about volume. It's much more about quality. Um, British gin, English wine, uh, and English sparkling wine in particular, I think are just sort of great flagship products for us to talk about. They work particularly well with politicians. And sort of last anecdote maybe there is um, we now take British politicians to see English vineyards uh, and what used to be quite an awkward conversation where you're trying to tell them how important the UK market is in an international wine market and how important UK businesses are and, and relatively their scale uh, across the world and the sort of influence that our market and our businesses hold is almost impossible to do from a standing start. But if your start is with an English wine business and a vineyard, you're able to explain it far more easily. There's, there's, the sort of defences drop. It's felt as a homegrown sort of product, and it's far easier to explain. Uh, and they get behind it. Uh, uh, you know, might be in their constituency, might not, but they understand it. They get behind it. Uh, and, of course, it's a quality product um, with potential for export as well, which allows you to explain that before you talk about imports. Um, yeah. It's a great place to start. Yeah. And listen, I want to talk to you about taxation because alcohol tax is, is very high in the UK. So I don't know where do we where do we stand in the world league table? Yeah, it's um this is not a, a league table we like doing particularly well in, but um, no, no, you're right. I mean, the, the European Commission has sort of stopped uh, producing some of these statistics, but we're broadly speaking third or fourth for wines and spirits, uh, or probably spirits and wines uh, in, in terms of um, you know taxation levels. So it's really the the Ireland and and uh, the Nordic countries are uh, you know taxed more heavily than we do only. Um, our consumption levels are absolutely mid table uh, if we're still allowed to compare ourselves with the other EU member states. So no, definitely taxes um, you know high. Um, there's always the conversation about is it having the effects that governments would like it to have. Um, you know I'm pretty confident saying no, it doesn't. Um, I, I think um, we're already seeing kind of modern consumption patterns reflect this sort of going for high a high value spending a bit more on a bit less uh, and i don't really think that um higher taxation uh you know affects harmful consumption um minimum unit pricing another um you know pretty extraordinary uh policy to have introduced i think we've had 17 evaluations of its introduction in scotland we have always said i mean we originally said we thought it was going to be illegal uh ineffective um and unfair. I think um, it's turned out not to be illegal, but it's certainly both of the other things. Uh, and what we're seeing is you know, 17 different evaluations, literally no impact in Scotland. And Scotland still has a more problematic relationship with alcohol uh, than the rest of the UK. So it, it can't be explained by taxation. Minimum unit pricing doesn't make a difference. Mm. Uh, I'm sure the Scottish government will come up with a different way of um, 
justifying an increase in minimum unit pricing and keeping it, but it, but it, you know, factually isn't there. There's been no impact. Now, I wonder, in terms of your greatest hits over the last ten years, are many of them your greatest achievements stopping things happening? You know, you sort of seen off the duty escalator minimum unit pricing, but maybe not in Scotland. You know, the deposit return scheme, at least in England, is, is it almost stopping things that make gives you most pleasure? Uh, um, yes. I mean, I, th- I think that's a very uh, sort of perceptive question, if I may suggest it. I mean, it's definitely that. I mean, we, we, we at the WSTA, we try particularly not to do the sort of chicken-licking approach to uh, a trade association, say the sky is about to fall in unless X, Y, and Z. Um, but genuinely, you know, minimum unit pricing, yes, we managed to stop it being introduced anywhere other than Scotland, and it's not worked in Scotland. Um, we, uh, you know, we've been able to... Um, avoid the, some of the worst problems resulting from Brexit, I think. Um, uh, we've got rid of some other things like VI1 forms. Yes, I think we really are trying to stop kind of the worst things coming through and some of the costs and some mad policies. Uh, unfortunately, they keep racking up. So deposit and return schemes, you know, not necessarily a great idea, but certainly an awful idea to introduce them the way they're in, expecting to be introduced in Scotland. Um so yes, I think preventing things happening. I mean, it, 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 sometimes it's harder to get credit for things that haven't happened than things that have. Um, but I'd be very happy to kind of put my, uh, you know, uh, put my kind of uh, CV against those things not happening and say that was a good result for the industry. I think the bottom line is we spend most of our time at the WSTA trying to think about how we can help our members do business as effectively as possible. Uh, this definitely takes us into Brexit. I mean, you know. Uh, very few WSJ members, you know, 90% were uh, opposed to Brexit. Um, but once it's happened, our job is to make sure that there's a, a, as little tr- friction in trade as possible. There definitely is some, um, but we want there to be as little as possible. And most importantly, we want to inform our members so that they're ahead of it. And that's probably been our, I think, our most valuable role. We're explaining to members what they need to do before they need to do it and how they can do it so that they're comfortable and they can make good, high-quality decisions of their own, so that their businesses can, you know, hopefully flourish, but certainly not sink. And, and you know, what are the biggest issues you think it will affect the wine and spirits trade over the next decade? And I just wondered if climate change is part of that. Is it legislation, taxation, the anti-alcohol lobby? I mean, or could it just be the thing that comes out of nowhere, like another pandemic? I mean, what, what do you see as you obviously can't predict another pandemic, but what do you think are the, the issues facing the industry now? Yeah, I mean, great question. I, mean, I think. You know, the risk register, uh, you know, exercise we always used to do, and we'd have something, you know, mad on it, certainly when I was in government, like, you know, a, a pandemic or avian flu spreading to the human population. But, you know, we've literally had that. So I think we have to start thinking about, um, uh, well, literally equivalent of it with COVID it came, if it came from a different species, um, bats. But, you know, the point here is we definitely have to think a bit more carefully about that. I personally think the challenges are going to be less on the taxation side. So I think the UK government is intending to, you know, introduce this new duty system. Frankly, it's not as different uh, as uh, as was promised. It's certainly not simpler or fairer, uh, and it's going to be more bureaucratic for wine by quite a long way. But I think that will become less important. I think over time, the challenges of the next few years are definitely going to be environmental. Um, one again, I think really good example of this is you know. The debate on packaging is pretty interesting at the moment. You have not long ago people saying, you know, glass, it's got to be the end of glass, glass is dead. Well, 
you don't get you know the microplastics problem for glass so microplastics are now in all oceans glass is you know inert infinitely recyclable so actually i don't think glass is dead at all what is a problem is that it's very carbon intensive to produce and we're working with you know one member in particular on, on something that would certainly reduce that drastically and rather change the game so there's a really good example of um you know, an environmental outcome where I think we could shift the goalposts really quite soon. And we definitely need to because we'll be under pressure to do so from, from government. I think the other thing there is um, our industry is probably pretty unique. Um, you can't make supply chains domestic uh, for wines or spirits. Um, and, you know, frankly, extremely difficult to, uh, you know, work out where your carbon emissions can be reduced sort of somewhere else in the supply chain. So you're probably, as an average company, not really able to take responsibility for carbon emissions for even half of your kind of carbon footprint. That means you have to work with others. So I think we're going to have to address it as an industry. So that will be one definite area where I agree, you know, the future challenge comes. I think public health reputation, that sort of thing, uh, again, just to pick a sort of a fairly obvious example, if Governments conclude, as I think they have, that the main sort of uh, public health issue resulting out of COVID is that underlying health is not good enough. Then I think they have to look at how they improve the underlying health uh, of their population. And that is, you know, obesity comes up as the number one issue, certainly for a first world country. Well, mm. that's not alcohol specific, but it's definitely, you know, alcohol, sugar, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, food and drink generally. I think that is a proper challenge for us. We have to be kind of forward thinking, responsible. And quite a lot of that, I think, comes down to informing consumers correctly. The big bit that's missing here that is a huge advantage for us for across just those two areas, you know, environmental and sort of uh, public health, I think is technology. Um, if governments could sort of engage with us fast enough, I think we'd be very easily able to say, you know, there's a minimum amount of information you need on a label, and you then need a QR code, not six or seven, preferably, um, because that's where it's going at the moment, but one QR code that gives you access to all sorts of information, you know, calories, nutrition, but also perhaps who who the winemaker is, where the glass bottle has been made, um, uh, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think technology has a huge role to play in us meeting the challenges of the future, but it's also the way that our industry can, if you like, um, uh, insulate its reputation for being forward thinking and working with government and trying to solve some of the problems that are coming uh, earlier. I also think it'll have benefits for trade. I mean, the government is um, embarking on all sorts of uh, high-tech projects on making uh, the UK's border as kind of seamless and frictionless as possible. Well, that's definitely technology based so we, we we need to we need to support get behind it invest in it and come up with some of the solutions before they're done to us mm. last question quick answer you've got this very high pressure job i just wonder how you relax i know you read a lot um do you drink wine still yes definitely um i mean i try, I try um uh, definitely try and you know drink uh, uh fewer days a week than perhaps i used to in my in my youth but no definitely and and you know following the trend, drinking less but better, um, uh, and sport. That's the other thing, whether watching or uh, playing, that's another big, big part of my, my life. Um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I've got kids as well, so they, uh, uh, they keep you thinking about other things. Nothing's more important than them. At least that's, uh, that's what they tell me. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic talking to you. 
Good to know that WSTA is in such good hands. Um, fascinating insights into the way the political side of the wine and spirits trade and, 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 and its interaction with politics works. Miles, so nice to talk to you. See you soon. Thank you, Tim. Enjoyed talking to you. Miles is such a calm, measured and intelligent person. You can see why he's so good at his job. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Mac Forbes from the Yarra Valley in Australia. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>